Hello, I'm interested in registering a political party. This is the Electoral Commission, is it not? It is. Now, before we begin, let me advise you need at least 500 members in order to register a party here in Aotearoa. And you will also need a party logo. In a good week, we have about 500 members, and this here is our logo. So, that seems to be a picture of Baboon's bottom. You're right, it is. Well, as long as we agree. So, 500 members? In a good week, yes. Hmm, okay. What is this party to be called? The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy Party. I see. Well, in fact, actually, I don't. The What Guide to the What Party? And you have 500 members. On a good week, yes. Although they are really people who like to support podcasters who like to talk about conspiracy theories. Really? There are 500 people who support that? Yes. Well, on a good week. In Aotearoa, New Zealand. Oh, God, no, no. That's that's 500 people... On a good week, apparently. Yeah, who support that internationally. You do realise you need at least 500 people in Aotearoa, New Zealand to be listed as registered and paid supporters to start up a political party. Sorry, 500 paid supporters? Yes. As in 100 supporters times five? Yes. Half a thousand. That's right. 500 in human mathematics. Well, currently we don't recognise other forms of math here. I see. Can we get by with 30? No. I don't think we'll be registering the party just yet. We might have less than 500 paid members, even in a good week. Could I... Could I have my party logo picture back? The image of a baboon's bottom? Yes. I have no idea what you're talking about. Good day. Well, hell, but, I but... said good day, sir. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. Brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Edison in Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, they are Dr. M. Dentith in Zhuhai, China. And we um, have some stuff to talk to you about this week. I don't think we have any admin business at the start, do we? No, not particularly. I will say I am running a conference on conspiracy theories here in Zhuhai in early February. The paper submission process just finished for that, so I now have at least twice as many paper proposals than we have slots for people to present in. So my weekend and the next week will be devoted ever so slightly to going, who am I sending polite rejection letters to? So that's fun. I assume the ones you don't send polite rejection letters to, you send crude and offensive rejection letters to? Oh, yes. Oh, Mm. Yes, there are some. And that's got to be the fun part. That deserve at least a curt rejection. Probably not a crude rejection, Aww. but very much a curt rejection. Written by Kurt. Yes, Curtis Hagen. Oh, I mean, I, I mean, you could, you could draft him in. I, I, I could. I mean, that would be a bit weird, but because he has submitted a a paper proposal. Well, get him to write his own rejection letter to himself. Who better to let him let him down easy? But I, I'm not necessarily going to reject Curtis's paper. That would be very confusing. Well, now Curtis, I, think... I mean, write a provisional rejection. We're probably not rejecting your paper. But in, just in case, write a provisional rejection and be as Curtis 
as you can possibly be. Yeah. No, I think I think now you're obliged to reject him just for comedy value alone. And given that he sometimes listens to this podcast, he's going to be very confused by what's going on here. Very, mm. very confused. Mm. Anyway, actually, I just remembered, of course, I uh, what I should have done last week is what I did the week before that, which is replug my latest mobile game for Android called Explodo. Nobody cares about your game because you have not ported it to iOS. And I know you're going to say... It costs too much money to port to iOS. But Josh, you are a podcaster. You are losing money doing this hobby all the time. Why not just suck it up and pay $150 per year to sell something on the Apple App Store for virtually no profit whatsoever, but do it for the fans. Do it for the fans. Also, you only have to pay the developer fee once and it'll be there for forever. What is 150 bucks? when it's my enjoyment of playing your game. How about I put an HTML uh, version of it up on a website so you can play it in a browser? I mean, uh, yeah, but I, 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 I want to smash the screen with my finger. And yeah, I know, we all do. We all do but, well, tell them to stop being such extortionate bastards with their developer fees. Yeah, well, the thing is, uh, as a hobbyist, I'm quite happy with paying $25 to Google to, to get a Google developer account and be able to submit things to the Play Store, but I'm not okay with paying $150 to Apple per year for an Apple account to submit things to the Apple Store when I haven't even got generating stuff in, 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 in iOS format down in the first place anyway. So um, I, I, I'm, I'm afraid you'll just have to have to wipe away your Apple tears, if that's a thing. And uh, Josh, Josh, you've not just betrayed me, but you've betrayed the listeners to this podcast. It's like you've become one of those Spotify or Audible exclusive podcasts where you have to sign up to a particular service, in this case, a Google phone, to be able to play your game. Don't you want your game to be available to everyone? I do. Everyone, but I Josh? don't want to pay everyone? Apple $150 for a game I'm going to be giving away for free because chances are a little more than 2,000 people will ever install it. But anyway, if you've got an Android device, go to the Play Store and search for Explodo Pool. It's jolly good fun, if I do say so myself. And if you do have an Android device, please flush that device down the toilet. Nothing wrong with Android devices. They're, they're quite fine. Anyway, let's talk about Nazis. Yeah, fine. Fine. Mm. Okay. By the way, you want to get me off talking about my... my yeah, into something a bit more savoury and palatable, of, 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 like Nazis. Of Google, an organisation which recently got into trouble for firing people for adhering to their don't-do-evil policy, which it turns out they've kind of more, taken... More of a rule of thumb now. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean... Not even that, mm. truth be told. And you want to distract me with Nazism and also, I should point out, anti-Semitism. Yeah, because, of course, you have, no, to, you you have to add anti-Semitism no, yeah. onto yeah. the Nazis. Yeah. That's... I mean, you're not going to try and distract me by being anti-Semitic. No. We're going to talk about anti-Semitism and Nazism, which do, do bit, go bit of together. overlap, I think, there. Yeah, yeah. F- fist and glove, but actually it turns out that we'll be talking about both Nazis and separately the topic of anti-Semitism. Who aren't necessarily Nazis, although it turns out one of the reasons why we're talking about the anti-Semites in the first place is due to Australian Nazis, which might be the worst kind of Nazi. But we'll get into that later. Yes. And by later, we mean now. This is a this is a very confusing preamble. Let's go to a sting. Mm.
So today we're we're back in New Zealand, by which I mean I'm I, I I've never left New Zealand. Em is, is is physically in China, but spiritually, we're both back in the same country to talk about a bunch of things of 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 a conspiratorial nature that have occurred it's in New Zealand. Weird feeling of deja vu here that I should be singing some kind of Evita Peron, Don't Cry for Me, Auckland region. There's this kind of this weird sense like we've been here before. Spoiler, we have. It turns out our first attempt to record the content part of this episode completely fell apart due to a dodgy internet connection mm. to have moved from Zencast to service. Zoom, and thus you have missed out on my rendition of Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, about the Auckland region. Some people will consider that missing audio to be a lost treasure mm. that will be talked about through the ages. Other people will be very glad they didn't hear me go, don't cry for me, Auckland region. Especially because I, I still don't think that's a very good rhyme. But you're trying your, you're trying your best, and that's what counts. Anyway. That's true. That, that is what mm. being an associate professor is, trying your best. Trying your best. So we have, we have two separate topics to talk about this week, um, neither of which we felt would probably fill out an episode by themselves, but by their powers combined, we should be able to bring you an episode's worth of content. So I've got one thing to talk about, Em's got one thing to talk about. They're both of a, a sort of a, an anti-Semitic-y, Nazi-adjacent nature. Which I mean, so no, one, no, I mean one, mine one of them isn't Nazi-adjacent, one of them is just Nazi. Mine is just, yeah, that, that's my one. Um, spoilers. Uh, and why don't, I, why don't I kick things off? Um, um, talking about the, yes, the why not kick things off by kicking some Nazis? Well, unfortunately, that's kind of not what happened, and that's that's sort of the issue. New Zealand has been um, has a has a has a, an unfavourable history when it comes to getting rid of Nazi war criminals found in this country. Um, <clears throat> so this is a conversation. Uh, sorry, this is a continuation of a conversation. We've had previously, um, back in the bonus episode for episode 281 last year, uh, we talked about the case of Willy Huber, a man who uh, died last year, um, having lived in the South Island um, since the 1950s. Um, but he was an SS officer uh, who... Um, was jailed after World War II, uh, but came here afterwards on a working visa in the 1950s. Um, eventually retired down south and uh, sort of re <clears throat> reinvented himself as a ski resort owner. And then after he died, people, sort of the locals, the people who knew him were like, ah, he, he, he seemed a decent old fella, you know, didn't, did, didn't, didn't engage in any genocide that I saw. Um, and, and nobody really seemed that interested in, um, in, uh, in any way sort of confronting the man's past as a Nazi. And not just any Nazi, um, he was a member of the Waffen-SS, the paramilitary corps of the SS, and not just any member of the Waffen-SS, he was a volunteer member. Suggesting he actually... Yeah, he was the kind of guy who went, hey, I kind of like what these Waffen-FS Boffins up to, I want to join in on that. I want to get in mm. on the SS spirit. So he, he 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 never he never denied the fact that he had been a Nazi. Um, and but but when asked, would talk about having been in the German army, but not mentioning being a volunteer for the SS. Uh, and and even claimed that yeah he he didn't even know what the Waffen SS did. They even gosh it certainly sounds like they got up to some very nasty things. 
um, in World War Two, but but I wouldn't know anything about that. And there's an um, awful lot of Sergeant Schultz from Hogan's mm. Heroes here. I know nothing. I mm. know nothing. Okay, so were you just always looking the wrong way when the SS were doing their thing? Because you know. You were a member of that organization, and yet somehow you didn't see anything that your comrades in arms were doing, or indeed things that you were doing with your comrades in arms. Hmm. Very peculiar. Almost disingenuously peculiar. You might think so. But yeah, so last year there was a bit of a a, a bit of a, a fuss about the fact that why why are we sort of celebrating the passing of this this unrepentant Nazi um, just because, oh, he, 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 he gave back to the skiing community, that gave, gave some, made some nice ski fields, and um, why, why speak of the dead? There, there seemed to be, you know, there, there, didn't, there didn't seem to be any, um, uh, any, any drive anywhere to hold, hold him or rather hold his memory account uh, accountable to the things that he uh, did in his past, and unfortunately, th- there's something of a theme there because New Zealand does not have the greatest history when it comes to dealing with Nazi war criminals who have been found in our midst. So the new piece, the new, the new thing we wanted to talk about this week, um, came out uh, was uh, it was talked about earlier this year. I think it's it's there. There have been documentaries earlier than that as well. Um, but there's the case of a man called Jonas Pukas, who was uh, formerly of Lithuania, um, but moved to New Zealand after the war and um, was at the time living in the suburb of Glenfield, um, up here in Possibly Auckland. Possibly one of the worst suburbs in the country. Well, I, I, I don't like to speculate. But, um, so, but he is one of a number of people in, in the 1990s, uh, I think in, in 1990, right at the start, um, the American Simon Wiesenthal Center gave the Labour government a list of eight Nazi war criminals that it believed were living in New Zealand. And on that list was this man, Mr. Pukas. Now, the government, um, he, he was investigated. A man called Wayne Stringer, who was a former police officer, um, was sent out to um, interview the man um, and interview, interviewed him twice, I believe, back in 1992. Um, and to, to quote the, this more recent article that talks to uh, former Officer Stringer, um, yeah, came away, the, the, the phrase, he was a horrible little man, shows up um, a bit. He, um, he was actually one of two police officers uh, appointed to investigate this list, but they, he, so they, he talked about his interviews um, with Mr. Booger, who at the time was 78 years old. I should say uh, this, uh, he, he died in 1994, only two years after he was um, interviewed, and he was an old man at the time. Um, and he interviewed him about, about his history and um, what he may or may not have been involved in during World War II. Now, um, he, as I said, was Lithuanian. He was apparently a member of the 2nd Lithuanian Police Battalion, um, a battalion that was known to have taken part in some fairly horrific massacres in and around the city of Minsk. Um, in particular, there was what's there was the, the Slutsk massacre, massacre. Slutsk being um, somewhere nearby Minsk, um, which Mr. Pukas seemed to know a lot about, 
but denied actually taking part in it all. He sort of he he, he gave um, some fairly graphic descriptions of of the you know what what it sounded like for for the people being shot and so on, and sort of claimed he um, either sort of witnessed it or heard about it or was sort of in the same area where it happened, but wasn't actually involved in it specifically. Um, in particular, and I, I've sort of looked at a couple of articles about this, and lots of people mention the fact that he, um, when when talking about uh, details of these massacres, he claimed that the Jews of Minsk screamed like geese as they were being shot, and claimed that um, they they used to they used to fly and in, fly into the air. He said with a with a bit of a chuckle, um, supposedly as 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 these people were shot. Um, which obviously is a a, um, a phrase that uh, certainly stuck out to a lot of people as being fairly fairly abhorrent. Um, so he claimed, well, he said that he was indeed a member of the Second Lithuanian Police Battalion. He said he never took part in any massacres. Um, to begin with, he said he was never there, but then he said, I knew he was there, but he was only there because he had been teaching German officers in Minsk to ride to, to, to ride horses. Um, and they decided to, to ride off to this town of Slutsk um, just as a you know just just as an excursion while they were learning to ride. Um, now, uh, Officer Stringer, or f- former officer, retired Officer Stringer, uh, is quite blunt in, in his opinion that this was bullshit. To use his words, um, he basically says uh, the, the man's story changed um, was inconsistent. Um, changed over time, and th- there are lots of those those very convenient memory lapses that you hear when people are talking about things. The, the, the bits of it that he um, just couldn't, you know, anything that might have been exceptionally pertinent or, or or potentially incriminating turned out to be something that ah, oh, no, I'm sorry, that was such a long time ago, I can't possibly remember that. Indeed, right down to describing things one second they go, oh I've, I've got no memory of that a second later mm. so I mean this massacre that he's alleged to have taken part in uh, is, is, is apparently is, um, written as being one of the most infamous of the war and, and very heavily documented we know an awful lot about it apparently it was so bad that, that it even um, offended even, even some of the Nazis thought it was a little bit uh, um, uh, a little bit, little bit more than uh, they could stomach. The local, uh, the German commissioner of the area, a man called Heinrich Karl, uh, claimed that he was so disgusted by the quote indescribable brutality of these killings um, that he wrote to his superiors and said, "I beg you to grant me one request in future: keep this battalion away from me." Um, so it was a you know a, a very very nasty affair that he um, very very. Uh, definitely seemed to have been involved in, despite his own protestations. So we we know all of this. He he gave these interviews, and um, Mr. Stringer came away convinced that you know that this guy is absolutely full of it uh, when he says he wasn't there and didn't take part in it. You know, he, he was he was quite convinced that he did. Um, so Stringer. Uh, went to the then Solicitor General, John McGrath, QC. Um, he said, d- d- despite the um, testimony from the, uh, the uh, Stringer and the other officer who were sent to interview these people, said that none of the people who had been investigated were guilty, um, even on a prima facie basis, of committing war crimes based on the evidence that had been gathered. Um, 
he did say he, he referred to one unnamed man who was probably present when a war crime was committed and said it was possible he was involved in this culpable homicide, and now it's, it, it comes out that that man was Mr. Pukas. But um, basically, uh, the, the, nobody decided to bring any charges or, or do anything about it, um, which basically brought on some uh, fairly, fairly stern condemnation from some quarters about uh, the way our, this country basically chose to ignore Nazi war criminals living here. From, from reading through it, it sort of sounds like nobody... It, it, it all sounded like a lot of bother to, to investigate, to charge, to possibly have these people deported. It, it certainly sounds like there's a lot of, ah, oh, I mean, it's going to be a lot of trouble, it's going to be a lot of hassle, um, it'll... it'll, it'll uh, cause a lot of fuss, and th these guys, are, you know, they're, they're old men. Like, what's the point? And certainly, I, I suppose you could say, luckily for the authorities in this case, the man died two years later anyway, which, which um, uh, got rid of any um, talk of of having him deported or charged with anything or what have you. And that that was kind of the end of it then. But um, over the years, up until just um, uh, just August of this year, when the the article that um, I was reading this from came out. Um, it is still talked about and is kind of a, a kind of a black mark on New Zealand's name, unfortunately. Which is a nice way to segue into mm. my little topic about anti-Semitism in the country, because New Zealand does not have the best reputation when it comes to dealing with people who aren't white, which is why I'm quite specifically referring to New Zealand and not Aotearoa New Zealand here, because we're talking about the Pākehā state. So from the country that gave you at the beginning of the 20th century a parliamentary debate about whether it would be right to wipe out Māori or just re-educate them as white people, after World War II... The New Zealand Parliament also debated whether we really wanted any Jewish refugees coming to this country, because they're not like us. They're not the kind of people you want in a decent society. And so New Zealand got condemned after the Second World War for not taking Jewish refugees after the discovery of what the Nazis were up to in Ray the Holocaust and, of course, the defeat of, the defeat of that Nazi program. And... This, to a large extent, fits in with the fact that anti-Semitism has been a feature of our political culture here. Blaming the Jews for things is something which happened a lot during the 20th century, which brings us, I'm about to say nicely, nicely is not the right word Conveniently. Here, brings us neatly, mm. I think, to the discussion of what used to be our country's third biggest political party, up until about the mid-80s, social credit. So from the 50s until the 80s, social credit was the third party in New Zealand politics. They were, for local New Zealanders today, the act of their day, in that they were the third party, unlike act until recently, social credit was remarkably successful in some elections, so... In 1981, for example, they got 20% of the vote, and in 1966, they got 15% of the vote in the general election. However, due to the fact that at the time the country was under first-past-the-post and had no proportional representation, even getting close to one in five votes in the country 
only actually turned out to be two seats in a parliament of 100 people. So you could get a very, very big groundswell of support and no representation back in those dark, dark days. And so social credit really were very, very big. After the mid-80s and the neoliberal reforms of the fourth Labour government, basically social credit disbanded and became part of the alliance at one stage. Elements of social credit still persist to this day in some parts of the electoral system. So, for example, when I was voting in Hamilton East last year in the general election, I could have voted for a social credit candidate. For some reason, they've remained remarkably popular in Kirikiriroa slash Hamilton, in part because their greatest leader, Bruce Beetham, who we'll be talking about in a minute, was mayor of Hamilton back in the 80s. So social credit were a really, really big deal. And they were a big deal because social credit kind of was an alternative to the capitalist system under which people lived that also wasn't a form of of socialism. So social credit owes itself to the work of one Clifford Hugh Douglas, often called uh, Major C.H. Douglas. He's a Brit. His early life is incredibly vague in that he claims to have worked for numerous companies around the world, all of which claim to have no record of him working for them at all. So there's a bit of a question as to whether his potted history of his own past is in any way accurate. What we do know is that after World War II, he came up with an economic theory that basically goes A plus B does not equal A. I mean, that sounds sounds about right. Now, Josh. Well, I mean... Unless B is zero, I suppose. Is B zero? Well, so that's the thing. So this this kind of gets to the heart of Clifford Douglas's economic theory. So his theory is, look, the total cost of goods produced turns out to be greater than the purchasing power of the people who produce them. So workers, he's claiming, are not being paid enough to buy back what they've made. Now, his argument as to why that is the case, the fact that it turns out that your purchasing power does not equal, sorry, the amount of labor you put into the system doesn't allow you to then get the fruits of your labor, is due to a conspiracy. He argued that that scarcity is largely an artificial and inflated problem designed by people in boardrooms to pump up prices. He wrote two books on this. In 1920, he wrote Economic Democracy and Credit, subtitle Power and Democracy, and in 1924, the book Social Credit. And in these books, he's fixated by what he takes to be the just price, the price that you should be paying, for a good based upon the amount of labor you put in, and the idea that there should be debt-free credit available to all people in society, his so-called social credit. Now, this particular non-communistic but anti-capitalist economic theory became incredibly popular in certain parts of the Commonwealth. So notably... Social credit was very successful in Canada, Australia, and of course our own Aotearoa, New Zealand. 
And this is where things get slightly awkward because Clifford engaged in a little bit of anti-Semitism. Now, his Wikipedia entry only has the barest reference to the anti-Semitism which appears in his book, Social Credit. In Social Credit, he does this kind of weird move where he goes, look, I know the protocols of the elders of Zion is a forgery and a hoax, but we kind of know it's true, right? I mean, we know the document's fake, but we know the conspiracy they're talking about is real. There are these banking cartels and financial institutions like the Rothschilds and all those and, and the Rockefellers and all those other Jewish families who are in control of international finance. So yeah, the protocols, they may be fake, but the actual story they tell, we know that's true. Now, this is actually a move that alt-right slash neo-Nazi intellectual Kerry Bolton makes in his alleged PhD dissertation. He runs exactly the same argument. And indeed, it is interesting that when we were talking about Action Zelandia last year and the fact that Action Zelandia keep interviewing Kerry Bolton, the people of Action Zelandia and Kerry Bolton are all very keen about putting their political effort back into rehabilitating and making social credit a major party back home. So there's obviously a, we can, we can kind of get away with our anti-Semitism in social credit because it's kind of already baked in. So yeah, Clifford basically indulges in a little bit of anti-Semitism to go, banking cartels are real and they are part of the conspiracy to inflate prices. Now, admittedly, this is a passing reference in the book Social Credit, and some people say he very much resiled from those views with time. The problem is the social credit movement, particularly the social credit parties we saw overseas in Canada, Australia, and Aotearoa, New Zealand, ended up being more anti-Semitic than just a passing reference in a book. And this is this is kind of intriguing, because looking into this, Social Credit, the party, and this is the party in New Zealand, the party in Canada, and the party in Australia, doesn't really ever mention Clifford's anti-Semitism, let alone their own dalliances with anti-Semitism. I found a Canadian PhD dissertation on the history of Social Credit in Canada, which goes into horrific details as to how anti-Semitic that organization was, particularly in the 50s and 60s. I found a master's dissertation written at the University of Waikato, which talks about the history of social credit, and the anti-Semitism basically makes one or two references. The social credit party page, since they are still an active party in our local and general elections, makes no reference to anti-Semitism or Clifford's views on Jews whatsoever. However, we know that there was a problem of anti-Semitism in the party because Bruce Beetham, who was their most successful leader, had to purge the party of anti-Semites in the in the 70s, right up until the late 1980s. So you can't really say that anti-Semitism isn't a problem in your party when your political leader spends almost 20 years 
purging anti-Semites from your party organization. Mm, yeah, it is a it is a little bit of a contradiction there. Is it? I mean, do, do we know if? I, I suppose it's hard to say if if anti-Semitism was sort of baked into the idea of social credit, or if people who are already anti-Semitic sort of joined in on this party and. Um, Additionally, at least weren't rebuffed from it. Sort of, did the did the anti-Semitism come from without or within? But I suppose at the end of the day, there's no denying it was there. However, it got there. Yeah, and a lot of the anti-Semitism ended up being expressed as dog whistles. So, one thing which social credit was really, really big on was conservative Christian values. So, they had a rather avant-garde economic policy, they had very conservative views on social issues. So apparently there was a big issue around the abortion debate within social credit, because social creditors by and large were anti-abortion, they were very conservative in their thinking. And they'd often talk about the idea that proper Christians, proper Christians aren't going to engage in money lending and the like. And of course, this has actually been part of what has motivated anti-Semitism, particularly in Europe, over time, which was the fact that because Christians were ostensibly banned from engaging in money, le- money lending and the like, they allowed other members, non-Christian members of their society, to engage in the running of finance and the, and the lending of cash, which turned out to be a much more profitable endeavor than just normal business transactions. So by forcing people like the Jewish people to engage in that tawdry business of money lending, good Christians were able to avoid the, the, the stigma of engaging in such deplorable activities. And then the Christians got really annoyed that actually it turns out that's a really profitable thing to do, and then blamed the Jewish people for engaging in a conspiracy to rob Christians of their money, even though it was the Christians who basically forced the Jewish people to engage in an activity because Christians weren't going to do it. As a really trivial analogy here, it's like the British getting really, really annoyed that people from overseas come to do menial jobs in the UK, despite the fact that the Brits themselves don't want to do those menial jobs. Those jobs should be for British people who don't want to do those jobs. Turned out Mm. money lending was exactly the same. It should be done by good Christians, except, of course, good Christians aren't going to do it. So, yeah, there's this whole whole kind of dog whistling of, oh, we know, no, they're the ones who are lending us the money, and that's not a good Christian thing to do. And yeah, it's kind of just riddled through the social credit system. And Beetham, in his wisdom, went, actually, we can't really be engaging in this kind of thinking as a modern political party. And he was particularly concerned with the League of Rights. Now, the League of Rights was and I say was, is still an Australian organisation. They were set up in the 1950s, just after World War II, and whilst they don't claim to be a neo-Nazi organisation, they also don't think the Nazis did anything particularly bad. So the League of Rights 
takes the social credit system of economics and then just actually is explicitly anti-Semitic at the same time. And because they were very operational in Australia, they also had branches and operations in New Zealand as well. And it turns out that they were going, well, look, you're the only political party that agrees with us on economic policies, because we both share the same love of Clifford Douglas, is social credit. So, of course, we're going to make sure that members of the League of Rights in New Zealand belong to the social credit party. We are also explicitly anti-Semitic, so, of course, we're going to be expressing our anti-Semitism within our party system, and Beetham basically had to cut them off from the party in order to stop them from basically making the party seem even worse than it was. Mm. And so when did this happen, this, this purging of the League of Rights? So depending on who you talk to, or depending on what source you look at, people say, oh, by the, by the 70s, basically anti-Semitism was gone in social credit except that Beetham was still purging the membership of anti-Semites right up until 1984. And this, this is the thing which is kind of frustrating about researching the social credit and anti-Semitism link, is that it seems like every single local source about social credit in Aotearoa, New Zealand, really, really, really wants to downplay the anti-Semitism that the party engaged in. Because as we were talking about with respect to those Nazi war criminals, it just seems a bit of a bother to talk about these things. I mean, it's ancient history, Josh. I mean, 1984 was, you know, what, 200 years ago or so? It's ancient history. Mm, no, one, no, right. no one in living memory remembers 1984. It was such a long time ago. And indeed, one of the reasons why Beetham was purging the membership of social credit of anti-Semites in 1984 was that in 1981, Labour had, in part, when they were trying to campaign to become government, were campaigning against the third largest party social credit by campaigning about the fact that social credit was filled with anti-Semites. Right. Yeah, it's a funny one. It's. I mean, I don't know... I don't know the demographics at all. New Zealand doesn't have a particularly prominent Jewish community, although it does have one. Unfortunately, the yeah, only time... And in part, and one, one, one of the reasons why we don't have a very large mm. Jewish community is after World War II, we didn't want any, yeah. any refugees to come from that particular part of Europe. Yes, the sad fact is I think the only time we do ever hear anything from the Jewish community is when some neo-Nazi shithead in Christchurch has been spraying swastikas on stuff, and we'll get a statement condemning them. So, yeah, I mean, it's I, I suppose it, more so perhaps than in other countries, the Jewish people would make a make an easy an easier target for people... Who want to get want to get a bit of bit of good old fashioned anti semitism into their political parties? So, so where, where's social credit today then? As I say, they still run candidates in certain elections, both local and general. They're still an active party. They've got a registered membership. They've got a party logo, a party website. They've just gone from being a really, really big party to one of those parties that was subsumed into the alliance after the fourth, well, actually during the fourth Labour government and the split between the left at that particular point in time. 
And like most parties that joined the alliance, with the exception of the Greens, those parties basically withered on the vine and died because it turned out that Jim Anderson was a horrible human being that no one could work with, apart from apparently the fifth Labour government. Mm. Yes, there, there was a lot of a lot of political history packed into the 1980s in New Zealand, but maybe that's... Oh, I was going to say, maybe that's for another episode. We have talked about it in other episodes, but maybe it's for another other episode as well. Always making promissory notes about future episodes we may never get around to. Well, it's the best thing about the future. It will literally never happen. It's not happening right now. No, exactly. Now, there was one last thing about... we. It's come up a little bit in the past when we've talked about your your actions, Zealandias, and what have you here in New Zealand, hasn't it? Yeah. So as I say, when we when we were talking about actions, Zealandia last year, or was it actually beginning of this year? I time has become very very well exactly. Who can know? Re- recently. So as I say, Kerry Bolton and the Action Zealandia podcast hosts were talking about the idea that they, you know, they'd love to support social credit, like to bring social credit being back in as an economic theory. They could really get behind social credit. And you have to feel that the reason why they're so comfortable in endorsing social credit is that they're going, look, I've read the book Social Credit. I know that Clifford was an anti-Semite. I mean, I know he says the protocols are a hoax, but, you know, he also says they weren't. And that's exactly what Kerry Bolton, as I said, uh, claims in his purported PhD dissertation, that, you know, the, the protocols are fake, but spiritually we know they're true. So, you know, spiritually we can learn lessons from them. And so, yes... Uh, I mean, luckily, organisations like Action Zealandia and the like aren't particularly big or influential for the time being, and so the chances of them having any particular political power seems low, particularly if they're going to spend more time trying to resurrect dead political parties rather than infiltrating live ones like, say, the National Party or ACT. But yes, there is a there is a call by some people to go to social credit, and the worry is that social credit is largely based upon an anti-Jewish conspiracy theory. Mm. Well, there you go. And I think that brings us to the end of this episode, a, a slightly depressing survey of New Zealand's less-than-stellar history when it comes to matters anti-Semitic. Now, we have a bonus episode to record after this one, which... Uh, Going going by our notes, don't think we've got any anti-Semitism in the bonus content, at least. But um, Jimmy Savile has a look in though, so I don't know if things are going to if that's if that's better or worse. Quite frankly, it's. I mean, let's just say it's equally as bad. Actually, no, that's not true. I actually don't. I so yeah, actually, that's probably not the right way to put it. I mean, systemic anti-Semitism is probably worse than what Jimmy Savile did as an individual. But it's still pretty bad. Yeah, precisely. We also there's been another one of those academic hoax things, has there? Yes. And it's all well, I mean it's 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 kind of weird, but we'll we'll get into yeah. Stockholm Cube after the break. Yeah. So if you would like to hear about those topics uh, and you're not currently a patron of this podcast, you can simply go to patreon.com and uh, search for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy and sign yourself up. Um, if you already are a patron, good for you. As, as is well known by now, you are literally the best of all people in the world. 
Um, and if you don't want to be a patron, well, that's you may not be the best of people in the world, but you're right up there. You're right near the top of the list, simply by virtue of being uh, one of our audience members, and we thank you greatly. But uh, I don't have anything else to say before we round out this episode. Anything from you? No. No? No? Well, in that case, I'm just going to be a stickler for tradition and go with goodbye. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy is Josh Anderson and me, Dr. MRX Dentith. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, it's just a step to the left.